Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. The fun begins. Ed, I was Stopping, and you said that uh, EC cabinet ministers have been afraid to come to this group because you asked such tough questions. Well, I steeled myself about three or four cups of coffee over the over the lunch, so please feel feel free to ask me whatever's on your mind. Sure, go ahead. Please identify yourself when you answer the question. <clears throat> Peterson is my name. I won't be too hard on you, Danielle, but uh, I'm going to ask you about resource revenue. Mm-hmm. We always talk about having a spending problem, but I do believe we have a uh, problem collecting enough for resources. Can you comment on that, please? I, I understand that there is a number of academics, certainly politicians, who would argue that the, the rates for what are charged to resource companies should go up. What I would say is that sometimes when you charge a high rate, you end up getting less revenue. And you get less revenue because you end up having more companies looking elsewhere outside our borders to do their investment. We saw that in uh, in 2009 when the massive increases were brought through on conventional oil and gas. It caused a reduction in land sales, so we lost billions of dollars there. We also saw drilling activity drop in half, so we lost billions of dollars there. Where I got it about right was on the, uh, the bitumen drill. I think everybody, including our party, recognized that what was happening in the oil sands is that they were charging a very low rate of interest. I believe at the time it was 1%. And they, cheer- they paid that rate until their capital costs were paid off. And so what was happening is the companies were just adding more and more capital purchases to push out the date at which they got the higher rate. So to give Ed credit on that side, he, he, he ended up fixing that for the most part. It's now a sliding scale of 2 to 9% until they pay out. And there's sort of a fence built around the project so that as soon as it hits 9, as soon as they hit payout, it goes up to 33%. So uh, I would say that you have to be very careful when you're increasing rates because it can have the, the opposite effect. We, we believe that the, the, the bigger problem is that we're not getting full market value for our product. This, this issue of not having pipelines is legitimately creating this gap that is costing us billions of dollars per year. In addition, there's another gap. The gap that world, uh, the West Texas Intermediate versus the international price, that's another $20 gap. If we were actually able to get our product to market so we could sell it to China or sell it to India or sell it to Europe, we would we would be generating billions of dollars more in revenue. So I agree with the Premier on this one. Our, our job one has to be getting market access, getting our product to market. That's the way that we'll be able to increase revenue without increasing the rates. Uh, my name is Frank Hoff. I'm normally the last one to ask questions, but I uh, thought I'd finish my dinner quickly. Anyway, ma'am, ma'am Madam Speaker, uh, uh, you, you deliberately or undeliberately avoided the royalty question. You finally, you were asked, you told us. There was five political leaders. I'll be, I'll, Mr. Chairman, I'll be brief. Yeah. Five political leaders. Pre, pre-election, we asked what our royalties were. We didn't get one answer from anybody. Now that you're the uh, Queen's, uh, the, uh, Her Majesty's official opposition leader in the legislature, you also, when you spoke at uh, LSTO, refused to answer. I had 09, 010 auditor reports with me. Yeah. I asked you deliberately 
please tell the owners, tell us what we're getting on oil. You all refused. We just had the finance minister in here two to three weeks ago, right here, and he wouldn't answer. He said royalties are a very complicated subject. Now, so the love of God is the biggest secret in Alberta. As a matter of fact, a politician named your party and the conservative party in Calgary on the public network he calls you people shills of the oil company because you won't face up to it. Ask now, your actually, question, please. Okay, actually, our premier did say a signal to come on the fundraiser at the Lodge Hotel after, after, the, after the election. She said, I believe there's 17 oil companies ready to pay the 25%, which means that we're still on the 2 and 25% fine uh, mode. So we are getting nothing by the time that they, they pay back. The oil, the oil companies are still, they're still paying money back to the oil companies. Okay. You made your question. Now what is your, the true? You said 2 and 9 percent. Your, your knowledge, is it 2, two and 9 percent or 2 and 25 percent? It's um, variable. So let me see, see if that mic and I'll tell you my understanding for the bitumen royalties. The, the problem of, of getting the answer that you're looking for is that it, it varies depending on what the world price, or what the price is that it's sold for, and that's a net price, so you have to, to reduce your, trans, your transportation costs and your production volumes. So it literally could vary for an individual company or project between 2% up to 9%, depending on their production and what they sell it for. Now, after they've paid off all their capital costs, and keep in mind, some of these big projects like CNRL Horizon Project cost billions of dollars. So after they've paid off those billions of dollars, then it goes up to 33%. So I have to tell you, quite honestly, I don't know which particular companies are paying 2% or 9% or 33%. There's, there's hundreds, thousands of different projects in Alberta, and every single well, depending on what the price is and depending on what the production volume is, is going to be paying a different rate. Well, this burial is in existence for, I've gone through, I have lived through eight premiers in yeah. the province. And for the first time, the owners of the resources are never told, have yeah. never been told. Everybody avoids the question of what we're getting. By the time we pay back, the, 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 the success in the oil companies are giving us nothing. Yeah. Okay, uh, next question, uh, please. Thank you very much. I, I think, generally speaking, a rule of thumb is that Alberta would get about 30% of the revenues that are generated from investment activity. So let's just say there was, um, uh, if you had, for instance, $10 billion worth of net proceeds, you would expect that the provincial government would get about $3 billion worth of that. So that, but again, it's all net proceeds. I, I understand how frustrating it is because it's very complicated, but we also have a very high cost base in here. There's lots of costs that have to be deducted out. There's lots of transportation costs. I talked to one company, for instance, that is actually getting the $95 per barrel right now because they're transporting their product down to the United States Gulf Coast through rail. So after they deduct out the cost of rail, then they pay the higher rate. So this is why it's a it's it's very very difficult to get those numbers. Uh, maybe you and I can talk afterwards so that you can you can give me some idea of what exact dollar figure you're looking for. Because it sounds to me if you take you're looking for what the average is. If you take all of the projects and all of the variability and the production rates and the rates and the prices that were charged during a year, what actually is 
the average Alberta taxpayer share. And uh, I can, I'll, I'll look into getting that. Next question, please. Next question, please. We're not uh, in the debate. Page. Uh, first, I'd like to congratulate you on what now appears to be an effective opposition. It's a long time since we've had that in Alberta. Um, I wonder if you could explain, give us your take, not explain, give us your take on how come all of a sudden the Premier is announcing that we're $7 billion in deficit and we've got to do something about it. Why has it come so suddenly? Uh, what do you think about the way she's presented it to the public? I was a little less reassured with your answer to the last question because it would seem you're not privy to the the source, the main source of revenue which the government has, and obviously you need to know about that in order to balance the books. The here's the issue: the um, the premier in her budget last year had inflated figures for everything. She had inflated figures for what she thought the price of oil would be. She had inflated figures for what she thought the differential would be between West Texas Intermediate and Western Canadians led. She had inflated figures for what our corporate income tax revenue would be, and she had inflated figures for what our personal income tax revenue would be. This is why we called it an Alice in Wonderland budget. There was just no possible way any of those revenues were going to materialize. We said so at the time. We said so during the election. We did our own budget estimates on the basis of lower figures because we just did not have any confidence in the revenue figures that they were using. The, there was a problem last year. There was a, a refinery that was converting over to, to heavy oil and whiting that was delayed. And as a result of that delay, it's created a larger spread in December. Now, when, when Ms. Redford says this... The spread is new, and normally it's only been a few dollars. It's not true. She also said that we're only getting, on average, $50 a barrel for our product. Also not true. We posted on our website what the dollars were for last year. Last year, even at the lower price that we were getting, we averaged $73 a barrel based on Western Canadians' select prices. The average spread last year was $21. The average spread in 2005 was $20.63. This is not new. What had happened was that it did narrow, it, it increases and it narrows. And there was a couple of years where it narrowed, but that is not the norm. The norm is that it's in the $20 range, the spread. But they got to thinking that because the world had operated a certain way for a year or two, it was going to continue operating that year, that way for the next year or two. And they put forward projections that, that just had, had no veracity to them. What, what Klein always used to do, and I know he got criticism for this, he used to understate. He used to be very conservative in his estimates. And then at the end of the year, people would say, oh, we've got these big surpluses, and he lowballed estimates. Well, isn't that a better position to be in? To have lowballed estimates and have money at the end of the day where you can actually decide what to do with that money? Then have highballed estimates and say, gee, my plan for next year is now $6 billion short, and I think we need a sales tax? So I think that this lands squarely on the premier. She, she tried to inflate the budget numbers so that she could go into an election campaign promising $10 billion of new spending over the next four years, and now the numbers are not materializing for her. There's a couple of things she hoped would happen. 
I think she hoped that international prices in West Texas Intermediate would continue to go up and up and up. And let's face it, when, when we were seeing troubles in Iran, it, it, we saw our, our prices go up. Turmoil in the Middle East can cause a bump in those prices. I think she'd also hoped that this spread between West Texas Intermediate and Western uh, Canadian Select would be narrowed. It hasn't turned out that way. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is that as these prices are lower than they expect, it pushes out the day of payout for all of those bitumen companies that are now currently paying that lower rate between 2 and 9%. It's going to be a few more years before they're paying the 33%. So all of these factors came into play. But you know what? Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a plan. We can't cross your fingers and hope that oil and gas prices are going to bail you out. And unfortunately, that's been consistent with this government over the last number of years. So we, we have taken a, a, more a more conservative approach in, in our estimates when we've done this exercise. We have also said as well that you restrain spending, get back into budget balance, have surpluses, and then have a strategy for how you manage surpluses. Determine, determine a percentage you'll save a percentage you'll spend, a percentage that you'll give back to taxpayers in the form of tax rebates. But all of it is based on you've got to run the balanced budget first, and you've got to have surpluses first. Okay. Thank you. Um, my name is Don Ryan. Um, most people are, um, are aware of the billions of dollars in subsidizing and uh, tax breaks for the oil and gas industry. What would your party do to encourage a transfer of some of these funds to alternative uh, sources of energy like geothermal? We don't support the idea of taxpayer dollars going to prop up any corporate interest or any corporate project. I guess I, I differ from you in your assessment of the um, of subsidies to energy companies. I mean, I, I know that it's been characterized that way by some that because our rates aren't the same as Norway's, therefore it's a subsidy. I don't look at it that way. To me, a subsidy is I pay tax dollars, and then the government takes those tax dollars and transfers millions of dollars to a company, like they did with the $2 billion carbon capture and storage fund, taking $800 million and handing a check over to Shell, one of the biggest companies in the world. To me, that is a very flawed strategy from a government perspective. So we don't support that kind of corporate welfare. We support the approach where you have a basic low rate of taxation, you've got fair write-offs that are equal for everybody, and you have the ability to use, to you enable companies to use more of their own revenue to be able to, to reinvest. But I, I would have to say the idea that you can you can subsidize and pick winners and losers, we tried that once before. That was tried in the long days. Are we doing that when we give them a reduced tax rate? For well, resources? you know, I suppose you can argue that. Uh, but I, I, the way I look at it is that our basin here is the most costly basin in the world. When, when, you're, when we used to drill wells with uh, single vertical wells, you were able to, to do that for a few hundred thousand dollars. Now that they're doing this horizontal multi-stage fracking, it's costing millions of dollars to do this. So when you have those kinds of differences in prices, you have to be flexible on how quickly your companies are able to pay back their investments so they can plow more in. In Norway, they're able to get access to huge pools with very low cost. And so it's a, it's a totally different structure. So, and, and, and in Norway, they do allow the companies to pay back their capital costs before they pay their higher rates. Our capital costs just happen to be quite a bit higher here. So I will say, I mean, look at... Uh, 
Um, I was going to say about the, the Lockheed and, and, uh, and Getty uh, investments in different companies. I, I have one of the monstrosities left over from that in my own riding when they thought that we could invest hundreds of millions of dollars and become a magnesium capital. This building is still been sitting vacant for the last 20 years. In total, I read a, I read a, a, a book where they calculated it cost taxpayers $5 billion in failed investments that went to individual companies. So to me, it's a, a flawed approach to think that government and civil servants can pick winners and losers in this game. They, they, the, the, the term I've heard before, I used to work at CFIB, we used to say, um, government can't pick winners, but losers sure know how to pick government. Next, please. So, Georgina Canedal. Um, so firstly, great work on your part and your team here in the province of Alberta. Thank you. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. So I'm from a farm. I'm presently on a farm, and I work now with many um, ranchers and farmers. And a lot of them have been excellent, excellent stewards of the land and the ecology on that land for, for many decades. So uh, should the statutory leaseholders be afraid of limited or losing access to their beast land? I think yes in some places. I don't want to be hysterical about it, but I do want to look at this government record. And when we raised the issue through the Land Stewardship Act that they gave themselves the power to cancel leases without full compensation, without recourse to the courts, the government said we weren't telling the truth. Well, the Lower Athabasca Regional Plan came out. They canceled, I think it turned out to be 19 oil sands leases. There isn't a, an appeal process for it. And now they're behind closed doors negotiating with government, trying to get their investments back. And my understanding from talking to a few of them is they're not confident that they will get full compensation. So now we've got six more of these plans that are going to roll out. And the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan is out there for consultation. And there are areas that have been identified as conservation zones that have a number of landowners who have leasehold land within those areas. So if they follow the same practice that they did in the Lower Athabasca Regional Plan, it's entirely possible that they could cancel the leases without compensation and without recourse. We, we won't really know until we see what the plan is. I take the same view as you do. We, we are getting incredible environmental value from having these land stewards who've been working the land for a hundred years or more in some cases. They're not only managing it for their cattle, but they're managing it for a whole range of grasses, which attract a whole range of different species, incredible biodiversity. If we had to hire a government department and hire government-paid ecologists to do everything that our ranchers are doing in the course of their business, that would cost us billions and billions of dollars. So we'll continue arguing that the, the work that our, our ranchers are doing managing those landscapes is actually the best use value for those lands. And we'll see how far we get with that argument. But I, I'm worried about leasehold. I'm also worried about water rights. I'm worried that because we have a, a, a very very dry area in southern Alberta, and we have a limit on, on leases that can be um, delivered up, or that can be bought out of the bow, I do worry what that will mean. Uh, when governments start deciding who they're going to take water rights from, because they have someone who's lobbied them about the need for water rights, we're in really dangerous territory. So we'll be watching it with great interest. Thanks, please. Yeah, my name is Larry Sweeter. I'm a member of the ADWA, which is the Alberta Workers Disability Workers Association. We've um, got a 5% raise last year, and I'm wondering if they're threatening our 15% raise, which they've asked 
we've asked for. I wonder if you know, you could keep the heat to the fire on that. Well, I hope you understand. Um, a fifteen percent raise. You're, you're, yeah, I hope you understand. Don't Yeah. So, no, but please no, help, help me understand. An explanation. What? Why are? Is that fifteen percent over a year or fifteen percent over five they years? They give us. Well, after we form the association, yeah. then we've got our five percent increase, and we're. Uh, do the same work as government workers, yeah. but we're not recognized for it, and there's no. There, what we're trying to do is classify us, and, and uh, so we can uh, justify why. Like some of us have been in the industry for years, yeah. and uh, like I'm relatively new to it, maybe ten. But uh, uh, the, our wages are just not anywhere near comparable. Like the, the government workers are, well, from my understanding, are getting twenty, and like we're. Somewhere around, uh, we uh, finally got to maybe 15, 16. Right. Right. I would say, and maybe surprised to hear that Guy Smith from AUP e and I have, have similar thoughts on this. One of the things that we, we see is that, and I think we're going to see more of this, is that when the government panics about where to find cost savings, they hit the front line. I couldn't believe last week when I read that 48 long-term care workers in a facility in Edmonton were getting laid off at a time that we're hearing all these stories about these senior executives booking $400,000 in expenses for their butler service and car phones and expensive dinners and champagne. But this is the problem of prioritizing, is that, and this is what I worry about with the, with the government, is that they're now beginning to message against our frontline workers, saying that our frontline workers are the ones who have to tighten the belt. Well, let's remember one of the first things Alison Redford did when she got elected in 2008 as Premier Stelmack's cabinet was voted a pay increase. One of the first things she did this past 2012 election was vote in an 8% pay increase for politicians. So we did a calculation. Because she's been targeting doctors, she's been targeting nurses, I don't think she said that, talked vocally yet about your field, but she said doctors are making 14% more than the national average. Well, politicians are making 44% more the national average. And it seems to me what we need to see is some leadership there. And this is what Klein did. Klein said, we're going to take the cut first at the political level because we understand that we have no credibility in talking to the people who are delivering frontline services to go and talk about austerity if we're not willing to take the first step ourselves. And I'm afraid that we're seeing the opposite here. We're seeing a, pol a politician who's taking care of her caucus the lavish travel and expense accounts of herself and her, and her cabinet ministers, as well as the senior officials, the layers and layers of high-paid executives who are all making over $100,000 a year and not delivering frontline front patient care, that's where we need to start looking for efficiency. It's not on the front line of people who are delivering the day-to-day -day services as you are. So it'll take us a little while to get there, but just understand we've got a different approach. We think that it comes at the top with those layers and some leadership coming from the politicians first. Next, please. Next. Ms. Mitchell, I'm surprised there's no mention of the environment as yet, although we've run around the oil thing quite a bit. Um, and perhaps I, I'd like to hear your views on the long-term uh, concerns about the environment mm -hmm. and the uses of non-renewables, the sustainability, and all that kind of thing. I think many of us here are a bit myopic, I think, in terms of the short term, mm -hmm. because we're not going to be here long, but it's the long term. 
um, aspect of the environment, which seems to get a lot of us that are concerned about that into trouble. And I would like to hear your views on what you might do in the long term. You're hopeful to be from the government at some point. Yeah. Uh, so could you do that, please? Certainly. I mean, it's a long potential answer, but I've just been told to keep my answer short. So let me answer a portion of it. I, I think the biggest opportunity that we have to reduce the impact on the environment is on the electricity generation side. There was a fabulous book that I'll recommend to you. It's called The End of Energy Obesity by Peter Tersakian. And he talks about a potential future where all of us might have solar panels or solar film on our windows. We might have a wind turbine on our roof or in the backyard. We may have a geothermal regional unit that is helping to provide electricity to a neighborhood. And then in addition to that, we have natural gas as our transition fuel because it's, got the, it's only got one carbon molecule, the lowest carbon molecule. And we move away from building these massive, polluting, large generation units and massive, costly, kilometers-long transmission lines. I think that that is where the, the huge new change is going to happen in Alberta. I know that uh, as long as the world is looking for our hydrocarbon fuels, we are going to provide them. But what we can do here is we can become consumers of energy in a way that is is uh, greener and cleaner. And that's the kind of thing that we would like to see supported. More microgeneration, more accessibility for small units closer to the community, and less reliance on the kind of approach that we've done in the past. So I hope that gives you one small aspect, but we've got more ideas on that. My name is Blaine Tucker, and uh, the issue I'm raising is something that leaves people really, really angry. How is it that we have a Heritage Trust policy that led surpluses of $12 billion, not a penny after Lockheed was gone. And how is it that Norway, with the same population as Alberta, has $650 billion in their Heritage Trust fund? How could that have gone, happen? It is uh, bad management. There, remember, there was a, a, a bumper sticker from the 1970s, please God, give us another oil bill, and we promise not to fritter it away next time. Well, they frittered away not only that boom, but the second boom that we had with natural gas, and now the third boom that we had with, with bitumen. The, to give you some numbers, three, we calculated $315 billion of resource revenue has been generated since these guys came into power in 1971. And the value of our Heritage Savings Trust Fund is $15 billion. So I, I think that the question we should be asking Ms. Redford is not, is not, why do you say we're $6 billion short? The question we should be asking her is, you're still generating $8 billion in resource revenue next year. Why aren't we saving a penny of it? Why are you spending every single penny of it? Why don't we have any money left over? Because I think that's the question that this government has to answer. It's, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. It's, it's mismanagement on a scale that is something closer to broad. To have that amount of money disappear with nothing to show for it, I, I think that's a, an unfortunate part of the, of the legacy ever since Mr. Mr. Lockheed left office. I don't recall the word printer. I heard a different word. <laughs> We're in mixed company. <laughs> Madam Smith, my name is Dal Gura, a three-time Liberal candidate from Left to Left. Oh, thank you for your public service. Thanks for standing And, um, you know, actually, the question the previous uh, caller or the uh, questioner asked, this may tie into that. Norway has 
$650 billion liquidity Alberta doesn't have? The reason is I'm not asking you that question. Where do you stand on progressive tasking? Every province in the country, including Canada, where actually a party is in power which is very congruent with your party's ideas. How come we don't have, and where do you stand on this progressive tax? And what is the, what do you know about the waste in the upper echelons of the government? Mm -hmm. Those are the two things we can balance your budget today. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on that? Great questions, both. I would say we don't, we don't, we don't believe that giving this government more revenues is the solution. They have been so irresponsible with the revenues that we've had, that we've given them so far. I, I just don't think new taxes is what we need. And I also, I also agree with uh, Mr. Klein's philosophy. Mr. Klein's philosophy was not, let's see how much we can squeeze out of each individual taxpayer. His philosophy was, let's have a low rate of taxation for everyone. Let's have a generous basic personal exemption. So family of two with two kids, family four with two kids, they don't have to start paying taxes until they earn $44,000. So you're protecting the low income. And let's grow the size of the economy. Let's have more people working here at higher income, and that will generate more revenue. And it's worked. It's actually worked. The high tax provinces with high single rate taxes don't end up generating as much overall revenue as we do with the lower tax. We just took a different approach. And so I, I think that's a, an approach that gave us the Alberta advantage and is what I continue to support. I think the problem is we've got to get a government that is able to steward those resources better. I wish I could answer your question about waste in the upper echelons, but I'd be here for the next half hour and it's trying to keep me moving along so we can get to every question. We'll talk more after. Massive. Yeah, Guy Smith, again, he and I talked about this. He said that when Klein came through with his cuts in the 90s, they were initially kind of excited about that because they got down to a level where they only had one manager for every 16 frontline workers. They don't have one manager for every three frontline workers. We've got, in some cases, seven layers of managers. They're all, again, making $100,000 a year plus, and they all have lavish exp expense accounts as well. That's where we have to start looking at the problem is reducing those layers of middle managers. I want to get the uh, next four speakers in, so will you keep your questions short? And in my answer is short. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Mr. Long, Daniel. Uh, Hello, good to see you. How are you? One one little comment before I ask my question: the reason that Norway has all of the money in their heritage trust funds is they never reduced their taxation to their public, and as a matter of fact, have raised it. So anybody in this place would like to stand up and say. Let's raise our taxes enough so we can put it all in the heritage trust fund. Would you give me time to get my rifle? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, you got some support for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, my concern, Daniel, is there is absolutely no accountability. Yeah. I don't think there's a person in this room who thinks that uh, per, the conservative person is going to uh, the conservative even know you uh, the judge, I guess, <laughs> is going to tell the PCs to pay that $430,000 back. And even if he did, I don't think they would. If you challenge uh, Ms. Uh, uh, Rutherford, as they say on Rutherford, uh, she just be telling the crap in your hat. So if, if, she, if she is told to give it back and refuses, is there anything the Alberta citizens can do about it? 
first question I'll say when you go back to the issue of accountability and taxes, um, I know some in the room have a tolerance for increasing taxes, but this issue of accountability, if you want to increase taxes, campaign on it. A great respect for Brian Mason because he said, yeah, I want to increase spending, but I want to do it by increasing royalties. I have great respect for Ross Sherman. He said, I don't want to increase spending, but I want to do it by going to a progressive graduated rate for the income tax. Ms. Redford didn't do that. She didn't campaign on increasing taxes. And so as a result, I don't think she has a mandate to do it. We campaigned saying we didn't think we needed to raise taxes. So this is why you will not see the wild rose advocating for tax increases. So let me um, go to your actual question. I think that the chief electoral officer now has the teeth to be able to force them to give the money back. And we'll see. This will be a good test. The results today of what they were able to reveal showed $20,000 that has to be paid back. And he made special note on his website that even though I found the wrongdoing on the part of the party that gave the money, not on the part of the party that received the money, it doesn't matter. you got to pay it back anyway. He actually put that clearly on his website as his understanding of the mandate that he has. And if he doesn't, we'll see. Look what happened in Toronto when, Ron, when Rob Ford was supposed to pay money back, and he didn't, and their integrity commissioner said brought it forward to council, and then he got himself into a bit of hot water because he didn't absent himself from the vote. But we've actually empowered the chief electoral officer now, finally, with this legislation to do something about it. We'll see whether or not it works. Next, please. Oh, um, my name is Wayne Skent. Um, I just, uh, this question really has to do with education learning authority. Um, basically, how can students' rights in schools where students with disabilities face learning difficulties every day change the traditional learning landscape to a self-learner campus or off-campus landscape where fighting administrative perceptions say they're listening or learning is showing otherwise? That's uh, just a short question, but I don't know where you're well, I mean, there are a lot. We went, met this morning, as I say, with the Lethbridge School Board, and they sound to me like through their alternative high school that they are attempting to develop approaches to education that are far more responsive to those who have uh, special learning needs, whether it's because they've got challenges at home that cause them to drop out, or whether it's they've got disabilities so they need the additional one-on-one uh, -on -one time. And I think that we're seeing with computer-assisted learning and with these flexible models, and as well with the fact that uh, the government now pre appears prepared to pay for students all the way up to the age of 21 to go back to high school, I think it gives a lot more of those options. I also, sorry, I, I should have mentioned not just the high school, but the college level as well. Yeah. Um, I understand a lot of students that perhaps have uh, disabilities, like myself, um, yeah. when it comes to student loans, uh, grants, and that sort of thing, um, like, even though they have statistical information to show that there are successes and then there's obviously the charts that don't show it, yeah. how can a student, per se, go, like, does it matter writing a letter to a premier and talking about the problems at a school specifically, like the college, like Lethbridge College or U of L or whatever that matters, Alberta, or does it specifically have to go through maybe talking to somebody who's a administrative you might find some success in dealing with the, the, the local the local college and the board of governors there, because they do try to have decisions made at the local level. I don't know if anyone is involved with the college. You might be able to talk with this young man afterwards to give him some advice on that. Well, okay, yes. next question, please. I've got two more, and we're past our time. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Thank you for your time. Hi, my name is Don McKenzie. Um, I just have, you've hit on some of these things, but I just maybe like to explain it in 
the way people can understand it, uh, regarding the, the $430,000 contribution, uh, first of all, he should not have even offered it, and more important, they shouldn't have accepted it. But the end result is, it was just announced last week that they're going to get a $600 million arena out of it. Mm -hmm. But in terms that people can understand, if you had $430 and you give it to somebody, he gave you $600,000 back. So that, that's, that's what we're talking about there. It's ridiculous. Question, please. There's no question. You got to get him to your next speaker. It's been in the press lately that we are losing $75 million a day on oil revenues. Right. Well, I question that big time. All you need is a calculator. Those guys produce oil 365 days a year. That's $27 billion, not six. So either uh, either her six is way out of whack, or her 75 is out of whack, which I, which I believe is the case. We're losing $16 million a day, which is a bunch of money. But she picked a river very well last election. She just picked oil at $100, because that's about where it was. No variance, no difference. Okay, $100 sounds like a good figure. Uh, oil stayed 100 for a few days, then went down to 78 Came back to 96 which it is right now. And again, well, that was the top value. That wasn't the difference. So, Sorry. Yeah. She's playing politics. <laughs> Then there's the $10 billion no, yes. I'm sorry, we can't have another speech. I'm sorry, we have one question behind you. Great comments. No, please do. Thank you. Sorry. Hello, my name is Frances Schultz. I'm in the process of dealing with oil well drilling on my land with H2S production. Now, the ERCB, one of the things that the Conservative government has talked about is making it easier for companies to fast track through the application process so they can get on with development of oil wells. The ERCB is understaffed. It can't handle what's happening now. What would you do about improving the efforts of the ERCB, ERCB to be in control of what's happening with oil development? One of the things that we were of trying to get modified in the legislation that just came forward was to continue to have the Environmental Appeals Board process for exactly these kinds of things. If there is some development that's taken place, the approvals have all been gone through, the production has begun, and there's an environmental issue, we need to give a mechanism to landowners to be able to challenge that. They, they refused to, to accept that amendment. So that's one thing that we need to have. Because it wasn't even receiving that many appeals. I think it was only about 40 appeals a year. But when those appeals come forward, they're very serious issues that have to be dealt with. So restoring an appeals process when that occurs is number one. Second is that, and I'll give the government credit for this one part, if it actually works, they have created a mechanism for landowners to now, or they will create it through the, this bill, to register your surface rights agreement with the government so that if you feel the company is not living up to the terms of the surface access, you will then have the ability to have the to have them come in and enforce it. We'll see how it works. Um, I think that's probably a very positive step for them to be to be doing that. But I am a little bit worried that some of the, the legal protections and the appeals processes have been taken away. Because this is again the kind of thing that will you have to kind of rely on the mechanisms they develop in the bureaucracy to be able to develop this. It's years away from happening, so I know that's not going to to, uh, to satisfy you. 
but we, we are going to be staying very close to the process to make sure that if they're making errors in developing this new regulatory model, we're at least able to bring them up. So if you have issues that you want to bring forward, Gary Bickman, who was here, is um, a, a bit of a, a, a buddy for the, uh, the constituencies that we have here, so you can raise the issues with him. We also have a terrific energy critic in the form of uh, Jason Hale and a terrific environment critic in the form of Joe Anglin. So if you have issues that you're raising with the government, just sh shoot a, a, a CC note to one of those guys as well so that we're aware of what's going on. But we're, we're going to be cautiously optimistic that they're going to be able to move forward with this new regulatory approach that will fix a few of the problems, but I have to say we'll be on, on guard to watch just in case we need to propose some other additional amendments. So thanks for your question. Thank you all for your questions. Sorry for my long answers. Look forward to coming back next time. Thank you on behalf of the group here, uh, Daniel, for an excellent address and your uh, willingness to respond to any question that there was, and we appreciate it very much. Just a reminder that next Tuesday at the Public Library at 7 p.m. from 7 to 9, should public funding be used for private schools, and the MLA for Calgary Buffalo, Kent Hare, will be speaking there. And next Thursday, uh, we have uh, Sandra Azokar, who is the director for the Friends of Medicare, who will be here at 12 o'clock next Thursday speaking on our urgent and pressing medical care issues facing Alberta, Albertans in 2013. And as moderator, I want to thank you for your courtesy and keeping your remarks short and that we were able to get to all the questions we had. Thank you and have a good day.